Well, welcome again to City Life. We're excited to be here tonight, especially after an announcement like that, Secret Church, just the, the privilege we have to come together in public, boldly worshiping God, inviting people out, like spending your Saturday inviting people to church, not even having to hide it. It's a privilege. We're excited to be here on Saturday night. Maybe you're new and you're thinking, this is odd, this is weird. Well, the Catholics have been doing 5 o'clock Mass for centuries now. We're just getting in on it. And I love it. We would never go back. And we love it so much, we want to promote it, this whole idea of church on Saturday here at Faith Lutheran, where they've let us install TVs, where they've let us uh, meet for worship on Saturday nights. So we're going to do a little something that's going to look like this. We, you could call it a, a social media promotion, social media blitz, but it's church on Saturday, fill in the blank on Sunday. So because our Saturday opens up Sunday to just pursue a whole bunch of stuff. For me, when I rest, I like three R's, resting, running, and reading. So those are my three R's. So maybe it's, maybe it's church on Saturday, run on Sunday. How many of you guys are going to the concert tomorrow night? Outcry? Yeah, with Jesus Culture, Hillsong. Other people, for him's probably getting back together, like Carmen's probably going to be. It was like everybody. But uh, they're all going to be there in Virginia Beach, so maybe it's church on Saturday. Concert on Sunday. I don't, I don't know what it might be. A, a big deal for uh, some of the people of the male gender. Uh, you talk about people coming back together. Football comes back together in September, so it might be church on Saturday. Football on Sunday. But the idea is this, that on Sunday, you, you might take that. We'll throw a, a blank one up on social media. You can use the over app, whatever it might be, but you can also just take a picture of whatever your Sunday is. Concert, running, whatever it is. You know you want to take a selfie anyways. So you can take a selfie doing whatever it is you're doing. Hashtag church on Saturday, and then whatever it is on Sunday, tag City Life Suffolk, and then on Saturdays we'll give prizes tied into whatever you were doing. So if it was church on Saturday, football on Sunday, maybe you'll get a little something, something related to the team. But don't try to get smart, like start stacking $100 bills because that's not, I'm not going to just start giving out money on Saturday night. I'll just be like, hey, we, here's the, the link to secure give. We want to stack up tens, right? But uh, we've been here at City Life going through a series called Good News, talking about the good news, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, how it affects us as believers, all those questions that were in that video, how are we called to live, what happens after we die. The good news is so good because it answers all those questions. And tonight I want to preach a sermon that's simply called Offensive offensive. So if you got your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 23. If you've got a smartphone with version, you can swipe there. And if you don't have either, you can look under your seat. We've got Bibles in the pews that you can feel free to use. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. And it says this. It says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching, can I get an amen, to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who are asking for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So that's the passage I want to pull from tonight. But God wants to do something tonight. So let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we thank you 
for, again, this opportunity to come into your presence, to worship you, to pursue you with songs of praise, God. But we know that your work, that you're not finished. God, that you want to speak through your word as you so often do into our hearts and into our lives. So we simply say yes in advance to everything you want to say, the areas that you want to convict us, the areas that you want to call us forward. Because we, as we talked about in worship, God, we're out there on those waves and we want to keep our eyes on you and follow you and be more like you. And everybody said, amen. So. It is awesome to pray because the Holy Spirit is here every week. It's active. And it's not just here on Saturday. He's active in our lives. And there's, there's some very real, real fruits that we see in our lives if the Spirit is active. right? Maybe the, the pathways we teach here, the 12 pathways. Maybe the lists of the, the fruits of the Spirit. But I'm convinced that one of the unannounced fruits of the Spirit is the removal of the phrase no offense from our vocabulary. Because in reality, no offense is very rarely said without offending somebody. In our society, it's a phrase to make insults socially acceptable. No offense used properly. You put it before something that you're going to say, which may perhaps offend somebody. Used poorly, you say the offensive thing, and then you pause a second. You say, no offense. You slide it in at the end. So, for example, no offense, but you've gained a little weight. No offense, but it smells like something died inside your shirt. Here's the deodorant I keep in my car, right? Or, or the, the worst, again, when it's improperly used, like your wife is annoying. No offense, right? You just throw the no offense in the end, hoping that the person is not offended. And we do that because people take their offenses and run with them these days, usually to their journal, a.k.a. Facebook. But sometimes when people are offended, they will flat out sue you. For instance, Austin Aiken recently sued NBC for $2.5 million after a particularly grotesque challenge on Fear Factor allegedly made him vomit and run into a wall. I wish that was on film because it would have gone viral and I would have watched it a hundred times. But according to Aiken, he was a regular watcher of the show and nothing had previously caused such a reaction until he witnessed contestants competing in a rat-eating challenge. In the show, the rats had been processed in a blender and then served to the contestants, which he claimed caused his blood pressure to rise so much he became disoriented and was unable to see the door on his way to the other room. Aiken claimed that the $2.5 million was an arbitrary amount and that he simply wanted to send a networks a message that shows had become too offensive. So maybe I find that extra funny as a former youth pastor that used to come up with concoctions for kids to eat. But you can look up lists of just outrageous lawsuits of people that have been offended. My personal favorite, maybe you've heard of this, is the guy that broke into a house, made his way into the garage. The door locked behind him, so he was locked that way. And the automatic garage door opener was out of batteries. Anybody know where I'm going with this? He was stuck in there for a week drinking a 12-pack of Pepsi and eating dried dog food. And when they finally got home, he sued and he won 500000 from the insurance company. It is insane. That's why I love it so much. It's insane. It's crazy. But there are people that get offended, and they sue, right? And again, if you were to go on social media right now, there's a long line of people that are offended about something. My Facebook feed at any given time is 50% just people venting about something that happened. They're offended about something that happened, and they want you to know about it. They might even want you to like it. Usually, I ignore it. Again, that's, that's a good thing for a journal or a phone call to your best friend. But there's a line in life between this is bad and this should personally offend you. 
And that line gets so blurred online and on social media that it just disintegrates, right? There's something has upset you, then, then you can be offended and vent about it here. And, and, and clickbait takes advantage of that. News outlets online take advantage of that until really it, it, it numbs me and it gets exhausting. And it's the last thing that I want to contribute to. So if I'm honest, when it comes to sharing my faith, sometimes that perspective plays a role. You might ask, why? Isn't Christianity meek and mild, kind and, and gentle? And the answer is yes, but it's also offensive. Because if you don't want to rock the boat, you don't want to counter the culture, or you don't want to challenge people where they're at, it's probably best to keep your mouth shut on the gospel. Because it challenges people. And as we'll look more deeply tonight, the gospel itself is countercultural. And when I realize this, I can get scared of offending people to where it kind of robs me of boldness. I walk around on eggshells, and I, I'm not as bold in presenting the gospel as I should. But we got to realize that this idea that Christians shouldn't be offensive is, is partially true. It's partially true. You guys aren't offensive. You're some of the nicest people I know, nice looking as well, so compliments all around. But the gospel is offensive. It puts people off, and this isn't a new cultural phenomenon. In Galatians 5.11, Paul says, if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. But what's implied there is he is, and people are getting offended. He says it also in Romans on being saved through faith over self-righteousness, he quotes God through the prophet Isaiah saying, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's Romans 9.33. The gospel will offend people. It sounds ridiculous, but it's not, as we'll look at tonight so what's ridiculous, though, is when Christians take this idea that the gospel can offend, and they take it as a green light to go out and start offending people. Let's throw some stones. Let's draw some lines in the stand. Point some fingers, right? Turn into a keyboard warrior. Blog battles, whatever it is. But not so fast. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what Paul was saying. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through 33, it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Maybe you say, well, I argue for the glory of God, right? I'm pointing out all these flaws for the glory of God. But he goes on immediately after that, and he says, don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. See, knowing the gospel will offend people and looking to offend people are two very different things. Nowhere in preaching, apologetics, or evangelism is there a green light for us to be tactless, tasteless, or loveless. You know, the cross, as it says in that scripture in Romans, and it says elsewhere in the Bible, it's a stumbling block. But so often, believers, people that say they follow Jesus, can trip people up before they ever get to the cross with their behavior, their willingness to offend. See, the gospel is offensive. But we're not called to bunker down and just keep it within the four walls of our church and within the four walls of our home so that, you know, nobody's ever offended. We're also not called to battle and draw battle lines against people that God's called us to reach. See, don't build a bunker. Don't build battle lines. Paul said be an ambassador, right? Represent God in his grace. Experience it and then extend it. But in a culture where we're offended over everything, you start extending grace to sinners, you'll get attacked from both sides. You'll be accused of coddling a sinner by one side and attacked for not accommodating their behavior on the other. But, you know, that puts you in good company. It's a lot like Jesus. <laughs> and maybe you're thinking, what are you even talking about? 
what even, right, as young teenage girls would say, I can't. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking, isn't the gospel John 3, 16? The thing we see behind field goal posts, we see at fights and all over TV, that, you know, God loved the world, he gave his son, and we get to enter into that love and have eternal life. Isn't that the gospel? How is that offensive? Well, that's part of the gospel. But the good news in the gospel in its fullness is that God created, man fell, Jesus saved, and there's a response that we're called to. It's just a four-point outline that I always remember it with God, man, Jesus response. And every one of those points has, uh, resonates in our lives so deep that you could spend your entire life studying it. But there's three universal, all gospel statements that all need to accept and can be offensive when you look at that outline. And we're going to go through those in a minute, but our culture doesn't like all-inclusive, universal, objective statements. We like to live by what's subjective. You know, if it, if it feels good to me and, if it, and if, it, if it seems right to me, then it must be right for me. We like forums to discuss our feelings and discussions on our desires, but truth is truth. You can say, that's my opinion. You can say, that's how I feel. Or you can even say, based on my life experience, that's what I know. And you can still be dead wrong because truth is truth. Truth doesn't change. Objective truth isn't dependent on any subjective feelings or experiences. And ironically, truth that's universal in nature is also narrow, just the nature of truth. If you walk in truth long enough, you'll be called narrow-minded eventually. You might step on someone's toes and offend them. They might even say you're on the wrong side of history, as if history always progressive positively. You know, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And theologians like to dig deep into where that conversation could have gone or what he meant, but we'll never know because he asked that question and he dipped. <laughs> says he asked the question, what is truth, and then he left. Maybe because the truth hurts. You know, sometimes we avoid it totally like that, but sometimes we avoid it by trying to find a third way. Avoiding making definitive statements where God has already made it black, of, black and white in the name of listening or having a conversation. And talking's not the problem. Listening is not the problem. You know, if, if the church lacks one thing, this is another sermon for another time, it's empathy. Asking questions, listening, and genuinely caring about where somebody is coming from and how God wants to intersect their life. But dialogue can become a problem when it becomes cowardice in disguise, passiveness in disguise, when we compromise truth to meet in the middle in order to not offend. And again, maybe you're like, what are you even talking about? Well, here's three truths that offend, and I also want to look tonight at three reasons that those truths are good. Why, those are good truths that we walk in. And the first is this, that all are created by God. And when it comes to self-worth, our society loves this, right? This idea that we are all children of God. As Michael Jackson and all those people saying, right, we are the world, we are the children. <laughs> this idea that we're all children of God, it's half true. You know, the Bible says we're adopted into the family of God by faith. But even our, our, our country is founded on this idea that we're all created by God. Right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their with certain unalienable rights and among those life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So having a creator is cool. We can dig that. So why is this offensive? Well, it's because a creator defines his creation. We love that we have a purpose, but what about duty? Our duty flows from our design, and design is defined by an object's creator. So, you know, but he walked up to Henry Ford after he made his first car and said, this thing would go great in the water. Let me go drive it off the nearest dock. Why? Because Henry Ford designed the car for a purpose, dry land moving from point A to point B. 
It's determined by his design that he designed it with as its creator. And in life, we can do the same thing with things designed by God. Take our sexuality. And we can take it and say, this would work great outside of marriage. This would work great with multiple partners. But it was created by God for a purpose. Monogamous relationship in marriage. And when we take God's gift and remove its design, remove its purpose, remove its duty, we can get hurt. Try using a lawnmower when it hits the 80s on Monday as a household fan and see how that ends for you, right? Somebody might get hurt. Try using a lawnmower to cut your hair next time you need it done. Somebody might die, right? You you don't do those things because you know it's designed. And yet we do the same thing with God's gifts and his design again and again in life, and there's consequences. You can ignore the design. You can ignore God's commands that are, are, are like an instruction manual, but you can't ignore the consequences. Our duty flows from God's design. You know, Frank Sinatra's classic is, I did it my way. Those five words are like the chorus of our culture, that I did it my way. Common advice that you hear again and again, see it everywhere, is, hey, find what makes you happy and do it. If it makes you happy, pursue it. And, you know, we love that because we want acceptance. We want affirmation in our pursuits and whatever we choose, regardless of how it falls in line with God's design. But that design in its very nature, again, dictates duty. Right and wrong, determination and definition. See, God just isn't our creator. He's our master. He's our king. He's our judge. Those also fall in line with the fact that he created us. But our natural reaction when we hear that is to balk, be offended at this idea that that we have a master, a judge, and a king. That's offensive to a culture that says, hey, I, I do things my way. But here's why this offensive bad news is actually set up for good news. Because common sense would say, That if you know something's purpose, you can get more out of it. Again, that lawnmower, you take it out of your window trying to blow air with it and actually mow your lawn, you'll get more out of it because that's what it was made to do. And in the same way, we were created with a purpose in mind, communion with God. And outside of that, we'll never have the fulfillment we were created for. It's a great worship group by the name of United Pursuit, and they have a song called Since Your Love where it says, I was made by you, I was made for you, and I am unfulfilled without full communion. Those are powerful words because we are unfulfilled without full communion with God. That's what we were created for. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says there's eternity set in the hearts of men. And I always think of it like this, like it's a groove in our hearts. Think about like a vinyl record. And, and that groove is eternal. And like you put a needle in a record, there's things that can fill that groove for a time. There's things in this life that, that cause pleasure. God placed them there for that. That can fill that groove for a time, but only for a time. The only way to be filled eternally is with eternal communion with God. Eternal communion. Not for a worship set, not for a weekend, not for a a service in a life group, but eternal communion with God. And again, other things can fill it. If sin didn't fill that void, if sin didn't make you feel good, nobody would struggle with it. But it does. It'll fill it for a season. That new car, new house, new acquaintance, it will fill that groove for a time. But like every good thing outside of God, it comes to an end. I love music. But even my favorite vinyl record, after a while, it ends. It's that horrible, horrendous scratching noise, and it comes to an end. Thinking those other things aren't bad things. Last week when we talked about money, we talked about pleasure, right? God put us in a place called Eden that literally means pleasure. And it was pleasurable due to the God that created it and the creations within it. And we enjoy creation to glorify the creator. Again, as we read in Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's our duty that comes from our design. 
Not the pursuit of pleasure for our own happiness. You know, our happiness, this idea of being happy has become such an idol in our culture that the very idea of bad news, we run from it. We flee from it. The idea of being offended, we run from it. But bad news is what sets up the good news as we've talked about again and again. The offense of the cross, our need for it, sets the stage for Jesus to meet that need. That's the second truth that applies to all people I want to look at tonight. And that's that all are broken by sin. All are broken by sin, not just a few. You know, it is getting warmer. It has hit the 80s a couple times. And I go on runs, and I've noticed some kids playing on slip and slides. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. There are certain things with slip and slides that aren't a good idea. I know this from personal experience. I'll get into it in a second. But here's just reasons why getting creative with slip and slides doesn't always end well. Oh, Zach, bring it back. Be my, be my helpmate. Help me out here. There we go. Hit it one more time. Oh, oh, we went too far, too far back. We're still good. One more time. Just once. There we go. Bad idea number one. Bad idea number two. That's just completely random. But in my life, bad idea, ramp. There's about 100 videos on YouTube. People put a ramp at the end of a slip and slide. They never land in the pool. They're about 0 for 200 on YouTube. Uh, Getting pulled by a jet ski, find that on YouTube. Those are also a bad idea on the ramps or anything. Um, And then uh, I don't know who even thought of running the opposite direction with the slip and slide. That ends poorly too. But there was a, again, we were youth pastors for years and there's a camp up in Pennsylvania we would go to outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It was up in the hills, hilly. And there was this hill between the sanctuary and the dorms that was way steeper than 45 degrees. And I would say it was probably a good 40 feet. And there's been a bunch of people that have been there. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but there was one year Steph's mother went out at our prompting and got giant tarps and we put a laundry detergent on it, right? Because that increases speed, which is smart when you're going down a hill that's really steep. And uh, I can remember, it seemed like a good idea. And I can remember that was the one time in my life where I know I sustained a concussion because I remember going down, being halfway down, and then the next thing I know, I open my eyes and Stephen Bullifant, one of the other leaders, is sliding down the hill going, Juice, are you okay? I know that Danny Webb, another person that was there, uh, fractured his tailbone. Couldn't sit down, went to the doctor and like, yeah, you dummy, you fractured your tailbone. And uh, he couldn't sit down for a long time. And then the best part that has nothing to do with any of this is the owner came out at about 1.30, 2 in the morning. We're making this noise and, and he looks around and he says, who's, who's the leader here? And we were all leaders and Hannah, Hannah Goblin turns to him and says, uh, we all are. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so slip and slides, be careful with them. But this fall we talk about in scripture is way more significant than any fall in a fail video. Its damage is more destructive than a broken tailbone. You don't shake it off or just brush your shoulders off or, or somebody comes sliding down the hill to ask you if you're okay and you get back up again. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, this is challenging because in our culture, we generally view ourselves as basically good at our core. It's a common stance in our society that we're self-sufficient and being independent is of great value. So to be confronted with the perspective that we're fundamentally sinful and rebellious, that's revolting and offensive to many people. 
and not far behind this idea that we talked about where if it makes you happy, do it, is this source of motivation where if you dream it, you can achieve it. Like Nike says, just do it. And there's a lot of things in life where that applies, where if you dream things for your career, you go after it hard enough, you'll, you'll obtain what you're looking for. But spiritually, in our hearts and in our souls, we can try as hard as we want. The prophet Isaiah says, even our righteousness is but as filthy rags. Spiritually, we have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. And the thing that gets scary is <laughs> we're not the victim here. It, it's our fault. Jesus doesn't just save us from meaninglessness, emptiness, or purposelessness. He saves us from ourselves because those feelings aren't symptoms of uh, uh, something outside of us. It's symptoms of a deep problem, our sin. See, I disobeyed God's word. I bit the apple when I chose what I hungered for over God's commands. And again, you can ignore the commands, but you can't ignore the consequences. It's like we pushed Henry Ford's invention a little too fast, but spiritually, we don't get a speeding ticket. It's more than that. Sin is rejecting the creator, the king, and the judge. But again, this offensive stance is actually a setup for good news. Because when you focus on sin's effects, you can never fully heal. You never address the true problem. If your focus is just on meaninglessness, then you can find a new mate. If your focus is just on purposelessness, then you find a better career. If your focus is just on emptiness, then you get a new toy, new house, new car. And again, that'll fill the groove for a time, for a season. But then you're back to the same problem, your brokenness. And when you realize that it's a core issue, you can address it with the only real cure, Jesus Christ. And you know what's one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture when you realize how broken we are? It's in Psalm 51 where David says, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. God sees value in a broken heart. In our culture, when we see something broken, throw it out. You can buy another one at Walmart, right? Put it on the curb. Somebody will pick it up. But you you can go get another one if if it's broken. But God gets glory in healing broken things for his glory. And to do that, we need Jesus. That's the third truth tonight that, that can offend, but it brings life. And that's that all need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. But Jesus says the answer to our Western culture can be challenging. It can be, again, borderline offensive. Because you look at our our American dream of a a wife, a home, the kids, and the dog, and here as our Savior is essentially a homeless man dying a torturous death on the cross. In our culture, we value appearance so much, but then if you read in Isaiah, it says of our Savior there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. The Savior we need is often not the Savior we would look for. But Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. Paul said to his protege, Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And one way is offensive to our culture, not because it's one way, but because it's not our way. Again, this this chorus of I did it my way is what defines our culture. And I was talking to somebody this week about the freedom of getting your license being able to drive. And I can remember the very first day I could get my license, I was there, right? I had taken the class. I was ready at 16. The day I turned 16, I got it. I started working when I was 14 just so I could have the money to put towards a car. How many of you guys can remember your first car and it was sweet? Anybody have like a sweet first car? Dustin, what was yours? Nice. Better than mine. Mine was just a Dodge Neon, right? Buying it with my own money wasn't super nice, but the freedom that comes, being able to just take off. Sure, you got curfew, but if you want to drive to the gas station and get a Slurpee, you can go drive to the gas station and get a Slurpee. There's freedom in that. And then you get a little older, and you, you go to college. There's freedom in that. 
There's freedom in going off and determining where you're going to go at what times, how late you're going to stay up, what you're going to do, what you're going to study, all of that. See, freedom to a young adult is individual freedom and control over your life. Driving yourself places as a teen, determining where you're going to go and what you're going to do in college. Freedom in our culture is one of independence, autonomy, and personal sovereignty. But freedom in the gospel is found in surrender, submission, and servanthood. The world says freedom is found when you find yourself, but the gospel says freedom is found when you find Jesus Christ. Because he's the only way. He's the one way. And again, there could be a hundred ways, but we'd want 101. Because we want the way that's, that's our way. Ravi Zacharias once said, it's not the truth some are looking for. It's autonomy that masquerades as reason. Now, read it again because it's deep because it's Ravi Zacharias and everything he says is like two levels above my regular cognitive thinking. But he says, it's not the truth some are looking for. It's autonomy that masquerades as reason. And what he's saying is, it's not the truth that some people desire. It's, it's their wants, their needs. They could pave their own path. It would be the way that they want to do it. And, you know, even in the church, even for us, Sometimes I think faith can become reason and self-seeking rationale with this stamp of spirituality on it, where we just live life how, how we want, and, and we just say, yeah, hey, yeah, it's God's will. I'm rolling with it. That's why scripture, that's why gathering, relationship, accountability, these pathways we talk about here, they're so integral to our faith because that helps determine whether we're really on the one way or we're going our way. And if we, again, if we could tailor our own path to God, we'd pave it not with obedience, but with our wants and our desires. And then just this other idea, nobody likes to hear you didn't earn that. Like that was, you only had that because somebody gave it to you. Again, I, I came from a blue-collar family. I started working when I was 14 so I could afford this car when I was 16. And I remember cutting sideways glances to other students at the school, you know, driving that BMW. Like, you, you got that because your mom and dad paid for it. Or even in college, looking around, cutting sideways glances at people thinking, you're not, you don't even have a student loan because your mom and dad are paying for this, right? And I just had this mindset, developed this complex of earning for myself. And it's one that had to be broken, not just because I was turning into a jerk, but because spiritually, it's not how the gospel works. And when I got over myself, and when I got over my pride, and when I got over my self-righteousness, I realized what a good thing that is. Because if you're in prison for life, and the president, whoever's in charge, says to you, you're pardoned, you're good, you can leave. If somebody says to you, you didn't earn that, it's like, so what? I'm free. I'm good. I don't care. But see, when we're pardoned by a judge, they expect us to go out and live a different life. They expect us to change. Only the most degenerate, desperate person goes out and commits the same crime again. See, the good news demands change. The good news demands a response. This idea that God created, man was the problem, Jesus was the solution. The question is, how do we get in on the solution? What's the response we need in our life? And if you don't believe that God created all things and created us with design, and if you don't believe that we've sinned and we're all broken, and if you don't believe that we need Jesus as the solution, then the response becomes unnecessary. We've turned the good news into nothing more than love and relationship, and those are big parts but we can't remove the truth that demands change. Sometimes we can just turn it into, well, God loves you. God loves you, bro, just where you're at. As if God's embrace allows us to embrace living broken. We leave out the fact that God loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us broken. He gave us grace to step out of the sin that maybe we've identified with or we've wrongfully treasured, and, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy. It's hard. 
We can't remove those hard truths in the name of loving our neighbor. You know, come as you are. I've seen a lot of comments on that, again, in social media where everybody vents about how that's, you know, are, do you really mean it? Because come as you are is a, a great invitation to church. You look at Jesus, come as you are. He hung out with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. I believe that means he, he knew what their kids' names were. He knew where they went to school, right? He, he, he knew what their job was. He knew how they were doing because he was a friend of sinners. But these are the same people that he would turn to and say, go and sin no more. Come as you are is a great introduction to church if we're introducing them to grace. Not just a grace that covers, but a grace that calls us to transformation. Come as you are is a great introduction to church, but it's not the introduction we're going to get at heaven. Because, again, that grace that covers is the grace that calls us to life transformation, being more like Christ daily. We don't, we don't need condoning. We need forgiving to get into heaven. And C.S. Lewis, who's way more eloquent than I am, he said, to condone an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good. But forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. And a man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. See, we can't compromise truth in the name of loving our neighbor. Because really, to drive somebody away from salvation and repentance, it's the opposite of love. And if we distort the gospel and God's truth, even the pieces that might offend in the name of loving somebody, it's not even what we're doing. Because love can't compromise morality to avoid offense. The gospel will offend. It'll hit like a bucket of cold water. But if we never grasp that we're fallen, we'll never cling to Jesus. If we don't understand the depths of our brokenness, we'll never understand the glory of God's grace. Another quote by another guy with two letters for a first name. I'm two for two tonight. This one's by J.C. Ryle. He says, a cheap Christianity that offends nobody requires no sacrifice, and costs nothing, is worth nothing. Again, a cheap Christianity that offends nobody, requires no sacrifice, and costs nothing, is worth nothing. But to quote the original JC, (laughs) Jesus Christ, he tells us in the Gospels, look, the Gospels will offend. He tells us in the Gospels, it, it might cause division even in your own family. He says it might invite persecution. And then what's the last thing he says when he's leaving the earth? Go and tell the good news. Go tell it. Run and tell that, homeboy. Paul points to the offense on the cross. The offense of the cross. He didn't say bunker down. Try not to offend anybody. He didn't say draw battle lines. Again, he says in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5.20, be ambassadors. Representatives who experience and then extend grace. Knowing that grace doesn't just cover our sin, it calls us out of it. But as we talked about a couple Weeks ago, how the good news spreads through witnesses. You can't be a witness if you don't have firsthand experience. Then you're not really a witness. You can't be an ambassador if you haven't experienced what you're representing for yourself. You can't preach and teach and make disciples of something you don't know. So as the worship team comes up, if I could invite them up, there's another quote. Look at this by another guy with two letters for his first name. Sorry, it's an inside joke here at City Life. But C.J. Mahaney. So the worship team comes up. He speaks of the gospel, speaks of the good news. He says, never be content with your grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more fast facets than any diamond. So if I could encourage you with one thing tonight, it's master the gospel. 
Make it such a, a part of your life it defines how you see things. This idea of God, man, Jesus, and the response we're called to. Be consumed by it for two reasons. The first, because we need it. <laughs> I need the good news daily. I need grace like I need the air I breathe. But the second is because, again, we're called to share it. And not just parrot it, not just repeat something we've heard word for word, but to genuinely share the gospel, to genuinely share the good news. I was an art major at William and Mary, and uh, I'm not good at a lot of things, but what I am good at is, is painting people and capturing their likeness. And as you study the greats uh, who painted portraits in history, they all have different styles, they have different things that make them great, but at one point, all of them had to learn how to draw the eye, draw the ears, the dimensions of the face, and just how it's all laid out, how to draw it. And yes, every face is different, but when they know the basics, then it's the, the brush strokes, the colors, and, and their own style that made them great. And just as it's the same way with the gospel and evangelism. Grasp it so deeply, God, man, Jesus, and this response we're called to that it defines how you see life. That you can express it in many ways to people of many faces, many backgrounds, many perspectives. That we won't draw battle lines, we won't go throwing stones, and we won't take the fact that the gospel offends as reason to offend or license to do offending. Come on, when battle lines are drawn between us and them, grace has left the picture. Because when you think about grace, we're all grace junkies, and we need a little more grace to make it through. But on the other end of the spectrum, don't water down the gospel, or it becomes not the gospel anymore. It's not the gospel at all. You know, again, without the offense of the bad news, one can't embrace the good news. So listen. Talk, empathize, ask questions, even tolerate this idea that you can be wrong and I'm, I'm still going to love you. But also challenge, confront with truth, call to transformation. You know that word tolerate is, is so blurred these days, but one of my favorite quotes on the subject is by a guy named Josh McDowell. And he says this. He says, tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. But love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior is sinful. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. But love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. But love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe that you're worth the risk. Come on, how many people believe that the people God has placed in your life are worth the risk? that that coworker he's calling you to reach, that friend, that family member, they're worth the risk. They're worth stepping out in boldness. They're worth explaining the depths of the gospel to, the good news of Jesus Christ. So if everybody could stand as we go into worship, the reality is that risk will take boldness. But the reality that helps me to be bold in the moment is this idea that one day, we're all gonna be judged by Jesus Christ. We're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And when I'm there, there's gonna be friends, acquaintances, coworkers, all these people that God's called me to be salt and light to. And if they know that I knew the truth all along, they might ask, well, why didn't you share the response that God called me to? Why didn't you share the depths of the gospel, how it, how it affected me in my life and God was calling me out of those things? Why, why didn't you share it? And if my response is, well, I didn't want to offend you, it's not gonna make them happy in the moment, not gonna make them content. It shouldn't make me happy and content when I, when I hold back when God's calling me to step out. You know, Jesus told us, again, that the gospel would offend, it would divide, it would invite persecution. But again, he said, go out and preach it. 
But before he sent them totally, he said, wait, because the Holy Spirit was going to come. You know, the Holy Spirit that, that gives us boldness. The Holy Spirit that gives us words of wisdom in the moment, words of knowledge in the moment. The Holy Spirit that's the power of God in us. If we're going to grow the kingdom here in Suffolk, Chesapeake, Portsmouth, Smithfield, Carrollton, this, this greater area, it's going to take boldness. And if we're going to see change, it's going to take sharing the gospel in its fullness. Not a version where we don't want to offend anybody and we take some parts out, but in its fullness. And come on, as we stand here, if you want to be a part, if you want to be God's hands and feet, if, if, if you want to be a part of spreading the gospel here where God's placed us, then I want to pray for you. Come on, as we go into worship, God, I ask, God, I ask that we would be more concerned with your name and proclaiming your name than we are with protecting our own. God, I pray that we would understand the, the depth of the Great Commission, this idea that, that once we're saved, that's our duty, that's our design, that the design of your salvation is that once we get a taste of grace, that we would run with it and share it. God, that we're given grace, but we're also given a calling. It's the design of the good news. God, we want to walk in the duty that comes from that design. God, help us not to, to, to bunker down, <laughs> scared to share anything, but help us not also to, to draw battle lines between us and the people you called us to reach. Well, God, we know that as we share, as we live, as we're salt and we're light, that your Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. God, so we just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us again in this place. Come on, if you need to receive boldness, fresh boldness, fresh perspective, because sometimes your perspective just needs to shift. You just need to remember that the eternity is on the line. For each person that God's called you to reach, there's going to be a, a day before the judgment seat. Will it be, why didn't you share? And if I say I didn't want to offend you, it's going to ring so empty. So again, if you need boldness, you want more of the Holy Spirit, just raise your hands where you are as we go into worship, because I believe God's going to give it to us tonight. We are put here for a reason. God did call us to this region for a reason. And it's to see his kingdom built. It's to see his gospel spread. To see lives transformed. Come to the hope of Jesus Christ. Come on, let's worship him for that tonight.